Well, good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas Eve to you all. It's good to have you here with us. And I want to especially welcome those of you who may not normally come to church or or maybe haven't been in a while. We are uh, really happy to have you here and thankful for you. Uh, Christmas Eve rarely falls on a Sunday morning, and so I think it's pretty special uh, in these rare years that we get to celebrate it together. Now, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you, and rather than turn to the book of Luke uh, to continue our study, I want to direct your attention to the book of Hebrews. And we are in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15 is our passage, just the two verses. And those verses can be found on page 1002, page 1002. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, where we will be focusing our attention on Jesus' advent, which is his arrival, his coming, the word uh, becoming flesh. We want to concentrate our attention on his incarnation, uh, which is the reason why Christians celebrate Christmas to really celebrate God coming to us as one of us. This is deity taking on humanity. And before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we thank you for this time, and we ask that you would please use it in mighty ways. Uh, There can be many mixed emotions during the Christmas season, uh, a lot of busyness, distraction. uh, Even with love and togetherness, there can be uh, sadness and loneliness at the same time. And so all of which, uh, good and bad, enjoyable and not, um, a lot of it can just distract us from the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we ask that by your grace and mercy, you would, by your spirit and through your word, show to us the wonder of Christmas and the awe of the Son taking on flesh for us. Would you glorify Jesus in our minds and in our hearts? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When we celebrate Christmas, what we're celebrating is the incarnation of Jesus. And what that means is that the Son of God became flesh, deity taking on humanity unto himself. Then when we look into the manger, we realize two things at the same time, that this is a human child, and yet this is God. Jesus is truly divine, and he is truly mankind. And our two verses this morning describe a bit about what happened in the incarnation and why the incarnation happened at all, what happened and why it happened. Those are the two questions of our message this morning, what happened and why it happened and what this means for each of us. And so we begin in verse 14 and see what happened in the incarnation. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Uh, What happened at Christmas? Jesus took on flesh and blood to be like us who are flesh and blood. The Son of God takes on humanity for the sake of humanity. That's what happened at the incarnation. And what this means is that Jesus knows intimately the human experience. You know, I know the uh, holidays can be tough for a lot of people, and and I don't think that that is the exception. I I think it actually can be more of the norm. Uh, Even with the uh, winter excitement and the Christmas glee and and family and friends coming together, uh, it's never uh, totally pure in one sense because of the dynamics within these relationships. There can be a lot of loneliness that can occur even when you are surrounded by a lot of people. You know, some of us uh, have even avoided these very gatherings for this reason. And whether that's you or not, uh, we are aware enough that that's a part of the human experience, that things like this can and do occur even amongst family. Now, now in the incarnation, Jesus understands exactly this. 
even about family. You know, when Jesus first began his ministry, it was pretty spectacular. It's as if every time he opened his mouth, the crowds would multiply. Imagine coming to church where every time he went, the crowd doubled. It was a spiritually dark time, and people were spiritually famished. And here comes the Son of God teaching people about God. And one might think when, when success is being experienced like that, that your family would be the very first ones in the front row, nodding their heads and supporting you all the way. Uh, but that wasn't the case for Jesus. Jesus' own mother and his brothers were way in the back. They weren't even in the room. And they actually protested his ministry, so much so that they sent another person to go get Jesus. Why? Because they thought he was crazy. They thought he was out of his mind, and they wanted to stop him from the doing the very thing that he desired most to do in the moment. Uh, Jesus underwent a family drama, he knows what it means to have a very unsupportive community. I mean, this is Jesus' experience. He took on flesh and blood to be like us, flesh and blood. His dad was a carpenter, Jesus too. His family was poor. They qualified actually for the smaller offering because of their economic bracket. And so you think you have unique financial struggles that no one else can relate to. Uh, Jesus, he can relate to you. How? Because he took on flesh and blood, like we are flesh and blood. Uh, betrayal, ruined relationships. I mean, he understands. Remember Judas Iscariot uh, being wronged? He knows intimately the entire legal system was unfairly bent against them. Physical pain, check. Heartbreak and disappointment, the same. For when he died, his best friends were nowhere to be found. Uh, the one perhaps closest to him denied three times that he even knew Jesus at all. And so Jesus is, is totally like us in flesh and blood and in his firsthand experience of what it means to be a human being. Hebrews 4.15 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And there is where he is totally unlike us. That last phrase, without sin. Jesus is truly human like each of us, and yet he is perfect humanity unlike each of us. He loves perfectly like we are designed to love. He cares like we are designed to care. He worships and is one with the Father. And when we observe his life, we see what perfect humanity ought to be like. He helps the poor. He touches the leper. He feeds the hungry. These horizontal relationships of genuine love. This is what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself, the second greatest commandment. We also see him in, in, in spend entire nights in prayer. His knowledge of the scripture, astonishing at a young age because God is the one whom he wants most, this vertical relationship of highest priority, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, the first greatest commandment. Jesus never swore, didn't lose his temper, would not return evil for evil. He, he never got high, never got drunk, didn't lie or bend the truth, even if that truth weren't popular. He, he didn't gossip sinfully. He never looked at pornography. He wasn't ever jealous or filled with envy, nor did he wish bad things on those who were more blessed materially than he. Jesus never cheated. He never had a temper tantrum, but he spent the hours of his life serving those who least deserve it. And and so in the incarnation, Jesus is like us in flesh and blood in enduring the brokenness of this broken world. And yet Jesus is totally unlike us, for he's perfect and sinless. And this is the incarnation. This is God becoming mankind. This is the what of what happened when Christ came to earth. And if God had sent him into the world to show us what true humanity ought to be like, 
so that he could condemn us by contrast, that this is how you guys were supposed to live, and this is how you all were supposed to be, and you came up very, very short compared to me. If God sent Jesus into the world, and deity took on humanity for this very purpose, then it would be horrible news that Jesus came as a baby born in a manger. For none of us would and none of us could measure up to a standard that he had demonstrated in his short life. And if Jesus is a standard, then we are frankly toast. But that's not why he became flesh and blood, so that he might condemn those who are lesser. No, Jesus became flesh and blood for a different purpose. And we see the different purpose, the why, as we continue in the next sentence. Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Why? That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Why the incarnation? What is the purpose in these verses of Jesus being born in a manger and taking flesh and blood to himself? Why? To destroy the devil, that's one, and to deliver us from slavery, that's two. Destroy the devil and deliver us from slavery. Jesus does that both by his own death. You know, the subject of death is, is unlike any other subject, I think. It's entirely inevitable as a coming reality for every single one of us. And it is at the same time almost entirely unconsidered as a coming reality in day-to-day -day life. We are each and we are all going to die one day. And yet rarely do we even consider seriously that death is actually coming for us almost at all. It's guaranteed, and yet we almost entirely ignore it. We spend more time thinking about what we're supposed to eat for dinner, especially Christmas dinner. I was at Costco yesterday. Uh, we're very concerned about Christmas dinner. We spend more time taking our kids to shoot baskets and kick goals and give more of ourselves investing into their academic futures than we do preparing them for what is inevitably going to come for each of us and also come to them. It's the day-to-day, -day, uh, what is most pressing and most in the moment, which keeps us so busy that in our busyness, we rarely, if ever, reflect upon our own mortality, which I think is a type of fear, like an ostrich burying its head in the sand. Uh, we pretty much rarely think about it with any kind of seriousness, unless, of course, something happens, maybe cancer, a car accident, a stroke, a heart attack. Maybe a funeral of a close friend that you attend that makes you contemplate life and death, uh, maybe for a few days, perhaps for a week or two before you go back to normal. Extreme turbulence while you sit with your seatbelt fastened. That's when you start praying and thinking, what if we don't make it? Uh, that's when we think about it. And then th that's often when death becomes this uh, terror. But until then, we ignore it, uh, eat healthy, exercise to avoid it, and push it to the fringes of our mind so that we don't have to think much about it at all. And I think that is how the majority of the people upon this earth deal with their fear of it, to close our eyes and kind of put our fingers in our ears and pretend that it's not there, nor is it coming, that that is somehow normal, which I think proves again that we actually do fear it. You know, death was never part of God's original creation. In the Garden of Eden, there was man and there was woman created in the image of God, and they enjoyed God without any barrier, without any sin, and without any kind of shame. And it was not only good, but the Bible says it was very good. I mean, this was the heights of joy for humanity, that God and humanity were together. And there was no death to contemplate, for there was no death at all until 
the devil began to reason with that first man and that first woman. For there is one tree that God had told them not to eat of in an entire garden of trees of which they could eat freely from. And the devil tempted them to think that the God who created them and the God whom they enjoyed, that this same God, I mean, he can't really be considered a good God if he says no, can he? If he says no to something, that can look so appetizing. God is trying to prevent you from living a fuller and better life. Why would God say no to something that looks so good? Don't you want what God has told you not to want? And God had warned them of this tree, you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 3.17, that's where death enters into the scene. And they used to love that command because of the trust and the relationship that they each had with God. But the devil, desiring them to die, tempted them to eat of what God commanded them not to eat. Now, this is the devil's masterpiece, that in original creation of happiness, joy, and peace, without evil, without death, without sin, he brought death into the world by leading humanity to sin, by eating the tree that they ought not to eat from. Now, this is really not about trees at all, and this has nothing to do with physical fruit at all but it has everything to do with humanity turning its back on God because we believe through the devil's lies that life apart from God, life different than his will, is where true freedom lies and is where real happiness and joy is to be found. And then they ate. And from that day, they began to die physically and they died spiritually in that they were banished from the presence of the Lord. The devil, in that moment, corralled the power of death within his hands. Not because he can actually have the power to kill anyone. He doesn't. He corralled the power of death into his hands because he tempts us of that which causes death, which is sin itself. He promotes it thus to guide us to turn away from God in whom there is life. The devil introduces the power of sin to humanity, which ends in death for us. And what does the devil, the accuser, long for humanity? He wants us to die, and he wants us to die eternally. He longs that we might be separated from God forever, and he declares to a holy God, you can't have sin in your midst. I know that. You can't. If you are holy, which you are, then humanity must die because they have sinned. And therefore, humanity wrought in sin can no longer enjoy you. They must be separated from you. And we know throughout the generations that we do die, whether we feel it in our own body like a few in our church family are currently feeling it, or whether we see it in the people we love, uh, it's slowly taking over. Or we have to think about long-term care for the generation that went before us. My uncle most recently moved out of his condo into town into a long-term care facility. And you know what? There was a lot of long-term care facilities to choose from. That's when we think about it. I think we fear it, and the proof is in the way that it's so difficult for us to face it head on and to think about it seriously and to talk about it very clearly. And it's this fear of death in our passage, which is what gives to us a lifelong slavery. You know, if you've ever lost someone you love and you've been in their presence, uh, maybe you even seen that last breath they take. I mean, you know in your heart of hearts that this is not right. This is not good. And there's something wrong with this world. But humanity is enslaved to it because uh, maybe the frequency of it, we just deem it as normal. 
when we know that it is altogether horrible. And the worst kind of slavery is the kind that you don't even feel anymore. That somehow we've been convinced to think that death is natural because it happens to everyone. For each generation has turned from God and each generation has experienced death and that's the state of mankind, period. You know, the devil's triumph against Satan's masterpiece is that somehow, by the introduction of that which brings death, he might sever humanity's relationship with the God who created us and designed us to walk into fellowship with him and for us to somehow be utterly fine with it because it happens to everyone. That's slavery in fear of death and in the inevitability of death. Now, why the incarnation. That's a question we ask. What is it and why does it occur? Why does Jesus become human? Why the baby in the manger? I mean, let's read our text again. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That's the incarnation. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who has a power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus becomes a human. He's born and placed in a manger so that he might grow up and die. God cannot die, only humanity can. Why is Jesus born of Mary? So that Jesus can one day experience death in that humanity. But does Jesus deserve to die? Like Adam and Eve and like me and you. And from Adam onward, we've all sinned and we each all die. But Jesus is perfect humanity who doesn't deserve to die. He's true humanity, sinless humanity, who should not experience death. Why is Jesus born? Why the incarnation? Matthew 1, 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. And how? For the perfect man will live in holiness and die in the place of the sinful. God in humanity, experiencing the death sin deserves to free us from the bondage of death which we have earned. God saves through the incarnation by the Son of God taking on flesh and blood to die the death of humanity that only flesh and blood can experience so that he might grant to us life and life eternal. That when the devil may accuse, they have to die because they have sin. Jesus can respond, they did die in me. I in their place, the guiltless for the guilty. And in Christ's resurrection from the grave, and death is defeated, and the devil's power is no more. He is destroyed. Death is destroyed, and the believer can be freed from bondage. And so what happened in the incarnation? Jesus became one of us for the sake of us. And why did the incarnation happen at all? Jesus was born so that he might die, to destroy the devil and deliver us from bondage by dying our death and giving to us his life. This is a gospel message, and that word gospel, it means good news. And this is where Christianity is really different from any other religion. And there are other gods that, that people believe in, and for the most part, uh, each and every other is, if you do this, you get this. If you live at this level, you can achieve this form of heaven. If you live below this level, then whatever form of hell. If you live this much, the gods will bless you. If you live right here, the gods will curse you. 
but really it's all on your shoulders. Most people believe in some form of this, whether they thought about it or not, uh, whether the God they worship or not. Uh, how do you know? You're going to go to a better place when you die. Well, I'm generally a good person. I don't murder. I don't do the extreme forms of what humanity does. And so by relative comparison, I'm going to be okay. But this is where Christianity is really different from any other religion and worldview. The gospel speaks uh, where everyone else is silent, that we all are really not that good that we are somehow the kind of people that can make even the holidays miserable for the ones we love most. I mean, we're a race where we run out of jail space. Our highest leaders are known for their lack of trustworthiness. Our closest relationships, even husband and wife, one flesh union, is often a battlefield that ends in divorce. Now, the gospel tells us you can't save yourself. You can't. The gospel says someone else has to save you. And it takes God himself to do just that that he must come to earth, that he must be born to live the life we have never lived, to die the death that we deserve, to defeat the enemy that we've believed, and to destroy the death that we have feared, so that the one who believes in Jesus, this one will be saved. Not because of that one, but because of Jesus Christ who was born in a manger. And this one gets to have life and life eternal. What does this mean for us? What does it look like in our life to be freed? Let me read to you a quote by D.L. Moody. He was a famous evangelist in the 1800s, and he said this, Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot take, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. I was born of the flesh in 1837. I was born of the spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the spirit will live forever. I, this is why we celebrate Christmas. For a savior is born, this child in the manger is born, that he might die so that he might destroy the devil and give to us freedom from the bondage of the fear of death, God and humanity in the one person, so that God and humanity can come together again without sin, so that we might have the life that we were created to have. And this is why we celebrate so much Christmas time. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that you sent your son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And Father, would you grant by your grace and mercy that we would look into the manger, that we would look into the cross, that we'd look into that open tomb, and that you, by the power of your spirit, would give us the grace to believe it. Would Jesus Christ be everything to us? We ask in his name, amen.